0: Hi, I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. So when discussing the big players in animation, we obviously think of Disney, Pixar, and of course, DreamWorks. If you need a bit of a quick refresher on DreamWorks, DreamWorks is a studio responsible for films like The Prince of Egypt, Shrek, How to Train Your Dragon, Boss Baby, and Trolls, just to name a few. DreamWorks is such an interesting case when it comes to its place in animation history, and I think their story goes largely unknown. So this week, we're going through the crazy journey of DreamWorks Animation. We've been on a bit of an animation kick here at the afternoon special podcast lately, and I promise you, we will be on to something else very, very soon. I'm just getting it out of my system. (laughs) So if that sounds good to you, let's get started. So because it's the root of everything in animation, pretty much, our journey does begin with the mouse, aka Disney. In 1984, CEO of the Walt Disney Company, Michael Eisner, appointed Jeffrey Katzenberg to head a failing motion picture and feature animation department for the company. Under Katzenberg's leadership, Disney turned out classics like The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. He was really credited with building back up Disney's reputation in the animation space. Katzenberg was always a very controversial character within the company. And by 1994, the tensions came to a boiling point. To set the scene of kind of how he was a controversial figure, he was kind of known for being somewhat receptive to the animators but kind of not really he was very focused on bringing in celebrities to these films and you know making it this really like kind of star environment for these films and so that would kind of contend with the animators and their visions and everything so he was just he was just very controversial and allegedly he was just kind of a lot you know what I mean So during this time, a lot of the checks and balances from the Disney C-suite came from the duo of CEO Michael Eisner and then president of the company, uh, Frank Wells. It was a man named Frank Wells. Eisner often had the massive ideas, you know, that were some were good, some were great even, and some were really, really bad. And Wells was often able to kind of sift through those ideas and find gold. They were a team, and they were really able to head the company during some of its most successful years, so that kind of late 80s to early 90s, mid-90s time. However, on April 3rd, 1994, returning from a ski trip, Frank Wells and four others died in a helicopter accident in Nevada. On April 4th, while having dinner with his son, Eisner received a call about Wells, his business partner of 10 years' sudden death. By 6 a.m. on April 5th, Katzenberg was awaiting a call from Eisner saying that he would be appointed to the president of the company in Wells' absence, a position that he had been lobbying for for as early as a year before Wells' death. In October of 1993, Katzenberg and Eisner allegedly had a conversation about Katzenberg becoming president of the company, where Eisner said allegedly, quote, if for any reason Frank is not here, you are the number two person and I want you to have the job. Allegedly, Eisner later called that a misunderstanding. So needless to say, that call never came to Katzenberg. And not too long after, he left Disney. This man was pissed off. He was angry. He really had nothing to lose at this point. So Katzenberg rallied together his industry buddies and his industry buddies were David Geffen and Steven Spielberg. Just two guys that you don't really know. Um, And together, they created DreamWorks SKG. They are the SKG in DreamWorks SKG. Spielberg, Katzenberg, Geffen. In In October of 1994. To say that this company was partially formed out of spite was a bit of an understatement. Katzenberg wanted to watch Disney burn. Professionally, of course, and allegedly, and he was willing to do just about anything to make that happen despite this very unspoken mission statement of the studio they did turn out some legitimately stunning films in the early goings of the company with the prince of egypt which helped to legitimize the studio's reputation after their first release which was the uncanny valley nightmare that was ants and i would like to talk about ants for 2 seconds which is a sentence that has not been said in 2022 at all um but ants if you don't if you don't remember it came out in 98 it is a movie about ants and it stars famously uh jennifer lopez sylvester stallone and a very uncanny valley nightmare in a woody allen like very neurotic ant z is his name and he's played by woody allen so you can you can guess what type of film we had going um here and it's kind of definitely falls in line with katzenberg's um proclivity to adding celebrities to these films, right? To pack in the stars to these films. And that is going to bring in, you know, a a whole new demographic of people. That really did start with Katzenberg, like under his, his, uh, his leadership at Disney in the early 90s. Because if you remember, during his tenure, they released Aladdin. And who did Aladdin star? Robin Williams. And Robin Williams completely changed how animated films as far as celebrity involvement would work because he proved that celebrities could be a really good fit within animated films because otherwise um, traditionally animated films were acted and performed by voiceover actors like people whose trade and job it is to be you know voices in you know a voiceover capacity so Robin proved that you can bring celebrities into the space and they could also do well. And so basically when DreamWorks was was started, they kind of took that idea and ran with it. Now, the problem with Ants is that Ants was not supposed to be their original release. Like I said, the Prince of Egypt was what helped to kind of legitimize the company and let people know like, okay, this is not just a little rinky dink animation studio. There's something here. But... They fast-tracked the production of Ants because, if you remember, if you know your animation history, 1998 was also uh, a time for the release of another bug-centric film from an animated studio in Pixar's A Bug's Life. So this is, again, all alleged, 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 alleged. But around this time or a couple of years before... It was said that there was like talk amongst the industry, you know, um, that Pixar's, you know, second release after their big hit with Toy Story was going to be a movie about bugs. And so it is thought that Katzenberg heard that this was happening and was like, we need to make a bug movie. We need to make an ants. Like, you know, we need to make a movie about ants. And so he kind of basically just fast track the production of ants to beat out a bug's life and it did end up beating it out as far as release goes but i think pixar did have kind of the last laugh at the end of the day because they grossed a little bit more than ants did at the box office um his Burke side of the story in all fairness he said that he heard it in a pitch a couple of years before he left disney and he just kind of carried the idea over and you know like everything is purely coincidence. that They released around the same time as Pixar with The Bug's Life. And so it's all happenstance. It's so coincidental. Definitely not on purpose. Definitely not spiteful against his former employer. You know, none of that. So that's kind of the record that he's that he sticks to as far as that goes. But Ants was their first official release. And it you could definitely tell that it is a movie that was made to spite another studio. Like, I remember watching ants as a kid and it's not um okay i'm not going to say that it's not a bad movie it is but it is not a terrible movie like it you can get entertainment from ants um i don't know how much you can now or even then with the you know again woody allen led cast but you know it's it's a movie that surely was made and surely was released And people surely did watch it. Um, But DreamWorks' legitimacy, like I mentioned, came from The Prince of Egypt. Now, if you don't know The Prince of Egypt, it tells the story of Moses. It's the book of Exodus, pretty much. Like, it is this, you know, very big biblical epic of a film. And that was, it's amongst the, it's considered amongst the, like, greatest, like, biblical interpretations in film, up there with, like, you know, like Ben-Hur and The Passion of the Christ and everything like that. Like it is a really well-made and I think beautifully made uh, film that so many religions have some, you know, version of the story of Moses to to a certain extent. I'm Christian, but like I know that it, it definitely is like a Jewish story. And so a lot of people really resonated with it and saw it as kids. Um, but The Prince of Egypt really was kind of, leaning into the moniker that DreamWorks was kind of operating under at the time, which was creating animation for adults. Like the purpose of the company in a way, other than, you know, spiriting Disney allegedly was to be an animation studio that made more adult forward stories. Um, still, kids could watch them. Obviously, the kids could watch The Prince of Egypt. They could watch The Rose of El Dorado, Simbad in the 70s. They could watch all those movies. But if you've seen any of them, you're like, yeah, a kid could watch this and it's like technically not bad, but <laughs> there are some themes in it that are a little bit more adult. So like in the Prince of Egypt, they talk about like famine and they they show it. They talk about like kind of like infanticide to a certain degree, like all of these, the the, the kind of, you know, real gory bits of the Bible, they gloss over those in a very like topical way. But they are not holding any punches. Like, they are really, they're giving it to you. Like, they're like, you know what? If we're going to use the Bible, we're going to use the Bible. You know what I mean? So, The Prince of Egypt is, it's still, it's a movie that still holds up, absolutely. I mean, not to, you know, get off into a tangent about it, but the the strongest points of this film, to me, are the animation and the music. Um, the music was done by Stephen Schwartz. Stephen Schwartz and Hans Zimmer I'm pretty sure and they put their foot into that music they I don't know what they put into the notes and everything I don't know what was on that sheet music but it has never left my brain you know what I'm saying like it is the original music and like the songs are really good, but then the score, it's its Hans Zimmer. So it's very bombastic and huge and like, you know, very epic feeling. Like it's very big, but it's just so great. And then, of course, you have like the title, like the big song from it, which is When You Believe, that was then covered by Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. And they actually gave DreamWorks their first Oscar, uh, because they went home with best original song at the, uh, Academy Awards that year. So like I said, Prince of Egypt was doing well. I've got the animation, um, stunning. It just really is, it's, it's a stunning movie to look at. I think it is showing what I think is always the best mix, um, when it comes to animation, which is using, you know, different techniques, uh, to give different looks. So the film is using, very early cgi like cgi was a couple years old at this point um and pixar was only like at that point when prince of egypt was in production only probably had one film under their belt which was toy story and even then the cgi is like not foolproof so i think dreamworks did a really good job of bringing in just enough cgi to like get the point across but like it is still a 2d animated film and it's stunning to look at it's directed by um brenda chapman and co there are two other directors but i want to focus in on brenda chapman um brenda chapman is like kind of this consistent voice within animation she's also uh was the co-director of brave so like she was one of like the one of the most prominent women in the animation space so she like co-directed this um and it's it's great if you haven't seen this movie in a long time I highly recommend it but like i said Um, it made $218 million at the box office worldwide, and it was definitely considered one of the most successful, like, non-Disney movies. Um, you know, definitely, like, at the time, it spawned a spinoff, which was Joseph King of Dreams, which was, like, no, it's not great. Um, I remember seeing it in, because I went to a a Christian uh, private school when I was younger, and I remember we would watch films like that, and, you know, it's just easy religious media to put on other than like VeggieTales um and it also like got a, a run as a, a stage musical too so Prince of Egypt has a very long lineage got its you know got really got DreamWorks's legs underneath them but the problem was while they made 218 million dollars at the box office, and that's a lot it wasn't this smash hit you know what I mean like it wasn't this big behemoth property for them they were working on other films at the time like um the road to el dorado which was meant to not be so serious but still wanted to be a little bit more adult forward and it definitely is um because if you watch that movie there are definitely parts of it that they are alluding to things that like Kit, should like it would absolutely go over a, a child's head. Oh, <laughs> there is there is one scene in particular, if you've seen that movie, with the uh, character of Chell and the other character of Tulio, and they are having, they're alluding to uh, relations that they're having in a scene. It's like, it's a split second, like, kind of blink and you'll miss it type of thing, but it's like, oh, okay, whoa. Um, even in how Chell is, the character of Chell is, is drawn there's nothing really kid centric about that movie. Um, <laughs> but I digress. So it just, but it, it falls in line with their, like I said, their mission statement of making more like animation for adults. It's not adult animation, but it's a, you know, family film that does tend to cater a little bit more towards the older members of a family versus younger which is what many studios traditionally tend to go for but unfortunately these films weren't like i said yielding a crazy profit like that not until 2001. And if you know where I'm going with this, you know where I'm going with this. 2001 marked the release of one of the greatest animated films of all time in Shrek. Shrek was this little movie that could to a certain degree. (laughs) Like it was this movie that so many people, especially within the company, were like, we don't know if this is going to be like super duper good or not. Like it was kind of treated as the, uh, the B team. And like, The A team and B team in animation is not a foreign concept by any means. Um, A quick little tangent story is that um, at Disney in the mid 90s, you know, kind of peak of the Disney Renaissance period, uh, two movies were in production at the same time because they released in, you know, consecutive years. So two movies were in production at the same time, one of which was uh, The Lion King and the other one was Pocahontas shockingly enough, Pocahontas was considered the A-Team movie. Like that was the movie that a lot of people wanted to work on. That was the movie that they thought was going to be this like awards darling. They put a lot of effort behind it. And Lion King was kind of considered like the B-Team movie. Like, you know, a lot of newer animators, younger animators were working on Lion King. They went through a lot of production issues. Like again, it was like this little movie that could. And lion king went on to be one of the highest grossing animated films of all time and for like 20 years until frozen i think it was the biggest animated movie of all time and i think it's considered the biggest 2d animated movie of all time and pocahontas was not any of those things in fact uh it is considered to be a bit of a blight on disney's animation uh history before a litany of reasons which we simply don't have enough time to go into today but Pocahontas great music but a bit you know a bit uh, questionable in in storytelling there so like I said the concept of A teams and B teams within an animation studio is not unheard of and actually it ends up always being kind of the underdog the B team that comes out making the really great film because you always you almost always have you tend to have like younger animators who are more willing to try things, more willing to, you know, bring a fresher perspective to things and you end up getting a movie that really resonates with the audiences. So Shrek was that. Shrek, I think the rights for it had been acquired as early as 1991. The book Shrek, which was written by William Steig, uh came out in 1990 and the rights for it were acquired in 91 by one Steven Spielberg, but he didn't really do anything with it. At the time, he had his own animation company, which was a spinoff of his production company um, company in Amblin Entertainment. They had their own animated branch, which was Amblimation, um, that made An American Tale, Five Will Goes West, and Balto, movies like that. Not a ton of, you know, big hits and bangers, you know what I'm saying? But they were fine movies, I guess. And Amblimation then became defunct after, like, not too long so he they did start to put shrek into production it was supposed to be 2d animated it was supposed to be a lot different i think it was set to have bill murray and steve martin in the roles of shrek and donkey respectively like it was supposed to be a much different film and they just couldn't really ever get it off the ground it never really went anywhere so the rights for it expired and it was up for grabs again and then a little bit later jeffrey katzenberg became interested in the story And he took it and got the right and acquired the rights for it. And when DreamWorks started, he was like, "Okay, I got the rights for this thing. Have at it. You know, like we're going to make this film. But yeah, our our meal ticket is the Prince of Egypt. So you go do whatever it is you're going to do with this ogre. So the movie stayed in production hell for almost 10 years, if we're starting off of when it was first acquired. Um, And then by 2001, it was this smash hit. People loved Shrek. And it's not shocking why people love Shrek. It's a great film, you know? Like, it is such the antithesis to what Disney was for the past 10 years. And I think the timing of when Shrek was released is so paramount to its success, right? So, like... Pre Shrek, from the years of 1989 to 1999, Disney is dominating the animation market. Right, you've got The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, which was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. And it wasn't when the Oscars had ten slots for Best Picture. It was when they had like five. So, an animated film getting Best Picture at the Oscars—that is a big deal. So, that's how big of a movie. And kind of the 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 cylinders that Disney was operating on at this time, like they were not messing around, and I think audiences have gotten so used to the and maybe admittedly a bit sick of the very wholesome saccharinely sweet um you know kind of borrowing from the Broadway standard. Style of music, like that whole formula, I think they kind of became fatigued by that by 1999. And you can kind of see that turn even within the Disney Renaissance, which again, the Disney Renaissance period is a period from 1989 to 1999, which are the films that Disney released that are animated. And you can kind of see that, that shift uh, around, I would say, maybe like 96 with The Hunchback of Notre Dame. It's a very different. Musical style—it's very uh Catholic and and big, and you know, uh, like very like <laughs> gothic sounding. um And then you get Hercules, which has this very like gospel sound. And then by the time you get to the last film in the Disney Renaissance period with Tarzan, you don't even have the characters singing themselves anymore, which is a big hallmark of a Disney film. You always have the protagonist singing with some woodland creature. Um, you know, you get the concept of the I Want song, which is always the princesses singing on a rock about, you know, wanting an adventure in the great wide somewhere. But by the time you get to 1999, Disney's almost becoming aware that people are getting fatigued with that very saccharinely sweet formula. You have Phil Collins serving as the, the kind of a uh, I guess, the internal monologue of Tarzan, who is a character who does not sing, right? So things are beginning to shift. Audiences are craving something a little bit more grittier is not the word that I want to use because I wouldn't call Shrek grittier in comparison to Disney. It is much grittier, but it is kind of a little bit more raw you know, a little bit more authentic, Um a little bit more rough around the edges. You know what I mean? Like Shrek was this very brash kind of abrasive movie in the face of this 10 year long run of these really sweet, wholesome films. And so it leaned into, you know, celebrity reference. It leaned into pop culture. It had this pop soundtrack um, that was full of all these different needle drops, right? Like the protagonists don't sing. Um, shrek is mean and he's like i said abrasive and he's a dick you know like he's a dick and the film is chock full of like adult jokes that still like kids may have kind of understood but like an adult watching that would be like that's hilarious because it's an adult joke right so shrek was all of those things and it kind of its success proved or showed dreamworks oh okay we've got something here. Maybe we need to pivot a little bit. Maybe we're not gonna be the super serious animation studio, you know? Like maybe this is where we're heading with with everything. And so that ball, that thought, that train starts rolling with Shrek. And then three years later, they release Shrek 2. And Shrek 2 proves to be even bigger than Shrek 3 the first one was like it was Shrek 2 was massive. It's considered to be one of the greatest sequels of all time. It's definitely up there for me. Um, When you're talking about great sequels, you know, you're going to talk about Toy Story 2. You're going to talk about the Empire Strikes Back. Like you're going to talk about Godfather Part 2. Shrek 2 needs to be in that list. And I am not kidding you. It is such a good movie. I kind of go back and forth between which one I like more between Shrek and Shrek 2 but Shrek 2 sometimes edges it out. It's a really good sequel but Shrek 2 was even bigger than Shrek the first one was. So then DreamWorks now had a franchise on their hands and a franchise that was incredibly profitable. So what happens when you you kind of you capture lightning in a bottle With this first film that's this very, like, abrasive, kind of mean, you know, a little bit ugly character. And then you're able to create a sequel that people love. And it makes all this money. Um, Both films, which I think put into perspective just kind of the different plane that Shrek was operating on. um, Both films premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. Cannes is one of the most prestigious film festivals on the planet takes place in like the south of France and films that go there they compete for like the biggest prize it can is the Palme d'Or um and so Shrek 1 and Shrek 2 both premiered there and both competed for the Palme d'Or they didn't get it obviously but to compete for the Palme d'Or as an animated film that's a big deal I think the only other film that has competed for the Palme d'Or might have been Peter Pan back in the fifties for disney so like not many animated films go there uh to compete and everything like it's not a very it's not a very standard practice um but if you're dreamworks you're seeing that okay we capture lightning in a bottle with this first film then we get the second film that makes all this money now we're going to lean into that formula that we're creating. This kind of like not, you know, these films are sweet but not like the first emotion that you get from them is not sweet. They're, you know, sarcastic and they're not feeling like they have to be so like, you know, la 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 la, la. like it's not it's very just kind of in your face. It's very pop culture referential. It's very just leaning into the 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 vibes of of the time. And they're also leaning into the celebrity of it all. Shrek 2 had, you know, Cameron Diaz, Mike My- Michael, My- Michael Myers-, Mike Myers, Eddie Murphy, John Lithgow, and that was like kind of the core cast. But then with Shrek 2, you expand that cast out to include Julie Andrews and Antonio Banderas and John Cleese and Rupert Everett and Jennifer Saunders. So like you are just packing in that celebrity and making it this kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, spectacle, I would say. Um, and so now DreamWorks is like, okay, we are going to keep this model going. How can we get more Shreks going? So then in the coming years, you have Madagascar, and then Madagascar gets two sequels. You have kind of the bit of an offshoot because it didn't get a sequel, but kind of a similar, similar vibe as Shrek, but not as well executed, even though I do love this film in Shark Tale, which if you don't remember, Shark Tale is the, uh, Will Smith and Angelina Jolie fish movie. Um, Renee Zellweger and Jack Black are also in it, but it's Will Smith as fish. Um, and it's Angelina Jolie as like a sexy fish. So you, you get that movie. And then a little bit later down the line, you get movies like Over the Hedge, and you know, Get Kung Fu Panda, which was another big franchise. So like DreamWorks has figured out this model of we can do these kind of fantastical stories and make them super sarcastic and pop culture referential and very hilarious and turn them into these franchises that do really well. But as you could probably tell, if you've seen any of those movies that I just mentioned, they kind of got a little bit younger in the demographic that they were targeting. And I want to take a second because I talked about this on Twitter, which is where I talk about everything. And there was at some point someone who was trying to suggest that I was saying that I was trying to shoehorn DreamWorks into the animation is just for kids box, which is the opposite of what I'm trying to do, actually. What I was trying to say, and what I'm trying to say to you now, is that DreamWorks, from the get go, has technically made films that are for the family. You know, it's fam. they said you should refer to it as family entertainment, which I will agree with. So DreamWorks has made family entertainment, right? Children and parents alike can watch these films. But if you look at a film or films like The Road to El Dorado, Ants, and The Prince of Egypt, yes, can families watch all those films together? Absolutely. But you are definitely intending to target the older half of that family demographic, right? That tween to teen market is kind of your sweet spot for those films. Tween to teen and adults or who you're kind of wanting to target with those films. And then with like, you know, a Madagascar moving into over the head, moving into Kung Fu Panda type of films. And then at some point Shrek the third sprinkled in there too. Um, you were still catering to that family demographic. It's the same demographic, but that you're then intending to target a little bit of the younger half. So maybe like tweens down to like the 10 and younger crowd. Both are still the family demographic, right? That is the overarching kind of market. All of these films can be watched by families, but you are definitely intending to go with either a older demographic with how you're intending to present the films or you're going with the younger younger demographic based on that same thing. I think this person was like, I'm trying to say that DreamWorks only makes films for kids. No, like we, we will get to that. I will circle back to that as we go along, but I'm like, no, these films can be enjoyed by literally anyone. And they have been enjoyed by most people. And the first half of DreamWorks' history, or really like the first third, I would say, was mainly kind of enjoyed by adults. It got a lot of critical acclaim in that way. So like, I think people were getting lost in in the sauce on that one. But like I said, as we're moving into the, you know, more franchises are beginning to pop up. At this point, we also get How to Train Your Dragon, which is a bit of a departure from the Shrek model because it's not, you know, like, super duper sarcastic and you know witty whatever it's this kind of like high fantasy for kids thing and it's proved to be really 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 like emotionally gripping at points especially in the first film um so they kind of departed away from that trek formula but stayed you know tangentially connected to it um so then by this time you were kind of approaching uh, in the kind of mid 2000s is when dreamworks is uh they start to partner with paramount and that's when paramount gets like distribution rights and everything um they're also working with Ardman animation which is a british stop motion company so they are responsible um in partnership with dreamworks for films like chicken run and uh wallace and gromit like the curse of the were rabbit so they are expanding on their animation styles that they're interested in which they've been doing kind of from the get-go um because if you're taking note, uh, they have done two D animation, they have done three uh, D, so CGI animation, and then now in partnership with Ardmin, they have done stop motion. So they're really hidden all the stops within the animation medium. So for that, I've always applauded DreamWorks's you know willingness to embrace different animation styles under one kind of studio house. It's always been really, really good work from them in that way. Um, but like I said, in two thousand six that is when paramount pictures had acquired the rights to distribute the next like 12 films that they were going to distribute and so under that we get you know over the hedge Fu panda like movies like that and then in 2016 is when things really do take a turn for dreamworks and in 2016 that is when they're acquired by nbc universal aka comcast um and they become under they come under the nbc universal umbrella which is where they are today And so around this time is when DreamWorks really kind of sets into this, again, family entertainment model, right? It's family entertainment. Anyone in the family can watch it. The whole family together can watch it. But at this time is really when they are kind of really leaning in to catering to a bit of a younger demographic within that family demographic model. So you get films like Boss Baby and Trolls, which are very kind of younger geared films. And so that's why I think the the person who on, on Twitter that I was I was talking to, I think that's where I was getting a bit I'm like, I feel like we're we're this is kind of like a straw man argument, you know, like while yes, anyone can enjoy these films, I don't necessarily know that a ton of adults are going in and enjoying or that Dreamworks was intending for a bunch of adults to watch a film like Trolls or Boss Baby. Could adults watch Trolls and Boss Baby and get entertainment from it? Yeah, they you could because they're they're coming from a studio that makes well-made movies. That's not the issue here. But if the intention of the studio is to be like, "Hey, this film is for like 10 and younger." It's intended for that audience, but anyone can enjoy. And I think it's like intention versus, you know, who is actually watching it are sometimes two different things. They can they're almost like a Venn diagram. They could be like intersecting, but sometimes they might not, and that's okay. It really is. But by the um the acquisition by uh by Comcast by them or of them, I should say, that is when they really begin to kind of set into making these very kid forward IPs. So like a lot of the biggest kid IPs that children love nowadays, like I said, Trolls, Boss Baby, Shrek, um, you know, all these different things, Kung Fu Panda, like they they are from they are from DreamWorks. And so it's a very different tale of a company that began with this very, you know, we want to make animation for adults we want it to be serious we want it to be kind of raunchy like everything like that to a company that is very different from that now and i think that was why a lot of the discourse if you didn't know um at the time of this recording dreamworks dropped that they made a new animated logo and it showed some of their biggest properties and some of their newest properties and it's planned to play ahead of the new puss in boots movie And it's an animated logo that includes uh, visuals of the bad guys, which is a movie that came out either this year or last year um, for them. So it's like their newest release. Um, It showed Kung Fu Panda, Boss Baby, Trolls, and Shrek. Um, And I think I might be missing one, but I think those are all the ones. And a lot of people were up in arms about like, oh, well, they're not honoring their 2d history and their 2d history is pretty small in comparison to like the rest of their company's history i don't think that the nbc universal version of dreamworks is all that interested in their 2d their past 2d history history because it doesn't cater to their current demographic um and to include like, and to include the Prince of Egypt in that animated logo would really be fan service for adults who are not their, their tar- target audience in the first place. Um, I think that's just the the long and short of it. Like what I love to see them reference the role to El Dorado, what I love to see them put the sexy ghost lady, uh, not ghost, she's like a goddess yeah goddess lady erin from sinbad legend of the seven seas of course i would but like i'm not the target audience of dreamworks animation i'm just not and that's okay uh so a lot of people were saying that um and everything and i'm just like guys like this isn't for us you know like this isn't for us this is for like the five six seven and eight year olds out there they're probably gonna eat this up they're gonna eat this logo up they're really gonna enjoy it um But uh, that was a whole nother thing. So I think it's a very interesting tale. The the, the company that began as Animation for Adults that is now, you know, taking a bit of a younger turn and found a lot of great success with creating franchises that kids and families alike can really enjoy. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily. It just kind of happens, you know, when you find something that works, you're going to replicate that formula as much as you can uh because that is ultimately what the point of the business is you got to turn a profit so if that formula is what's going to turn that profit you're going to do that um but it still doesn't make their their films any less enjoyable i think that the new puss in boots movie which is kind of borrowing from the into the spider-verse style of animation i think it looks great and i think a lot of i've seen a lot of people like a lot of adults talking about it so it's not to say they're only catering to like a 10 and below crowd but they largely are but they are still capable of making films that anyone can enjoy that's that's a constant you know that's never gone away animation is for everyone and it has always been for everyone but an intended market is a completely different thing it doesn't mean that you as an adult cannot watch boss baby no one is stopping you from watching boss baby if that's what you want but you can it's it had an intended audience and it may not be adult and that's okay so that is the kind of unofficial history unofficial jaunt through the pop culture journey of of dreamworks it's a very interesting animation studio um It doesn't get nearly enough credit. I think it's a really good animation studio. They're doing some really imaginative things as far as animation style goes. And they're just, it seems like they're just having fun with these films. And I can always respect that. Will it always be kind of second fiddle to the Disney's and Pixar's of the world? Perhaps. Perhaps, but it doesn't make it any less good. I have a good time. There are plenty, some of, like I said, Shrek and Shrek 2 are Easily in my top ten greatest movies of all time lists, they're definitely in my favorite movies of all time list. Um, so DreamWorks is is good. <laughs> that's that's my my stamp of approval. DreamWorks is good. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed today's episode Afternooners if you don't know the Afternooners is my name for all of us so if you made it to the end of this episode congratulations you're an Afternooner now if you like this episode don't forget to rate and review this podcast if you had a good time it helps out the pod you get to tell me how you're feeling about the pod and I get that sweet hit of praise and validation that is my life force and keeps me going. If you want to know where else to find me on the internet, you can find me at the afternoon special on TikTok or Instagram or over on Twitter at hi, I'm Bobby, H-I-I-M-B-O-B-B-I. And if you're thinking, Bobby, I need to go on a full DreamWorks marathon from start to finish. I'm not going to be able to remember all that, bestie. I get it. I support it. And I might join you. So when you're ready, I put all that information in the description down below just for you. You're welcome. You can probably tell that it's been a little bit of time, you know, plotting out these episodes, ruminating on the history of DreamWorks and the like. And so I have to put something on in the background. Uh, and of course, who guessed it? What am I listening to while I'm doing this? Of course, I'm listening to the Track Two soundtrack. It's great. It's a great soundtrack. The first one is great, but the second one, especially "Ever Fallen in Love," the Peter Yorn version. Oh my gosh, I think it's gonna be in my Spotify Wrapped. I hope. I'm hoping. Uh, But I love that song, and I always play it while I'm doing work. So that's what this week's episode is powered by. I hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you'll join me again next week for another pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Carlos King, one of the most sought-after executive producers in reality television. I am thrilled to announce Reality with the King, where we'll discuss all things reality TV. I have interviewed everyone from Mimi Leakes, Teresa Judai and Kenya Moore. Each episode, we will rehash shocking portrayals, honey. Yes! Hilarious shade and all the drama. Reality with the King podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.